Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic. Chapter 18. Antony, Octavian, and Actium. Last week, the power structure of the Triumvirate was shaken up. Octavian finally defeated Sextus Pompey with the help of his friend Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. Octavian also stripped Lepidus of all his power, leaving the Republic commanded by himself and Antony. Octavian's wars in Illyria and Dacia also went well for him, and he used his wealth to start building projects in Rome. Octavian was bringing peace to the Western Roman world, and the people appreciated him for it. For as well as things were going for Octavian, in the east, Antony's invasion of Parthia cost him dearly. He lost up to 33,000 of his 100,000-man army. He did not return to Rome a war hero, and in fact, did not return to Rome at all. To recover, he went to Alexandria, the capital of Egypt, where his lover, Queen Cleopatra, could care for him. Our essential question to keep in mind this episode is, what events led up to Actium, and what would happen after Actium? As a content warning, there is reference to possible sexual assault this episode. Antony's eastern forces were still in no condition to make another invasion into Parthia. However, in 34 BCE, two years after his disastrous invasion into Parthia, Antony was able to achieve a little revenge. King Artavastes of Armenia was a client king who had given forces to Antony for his invasion of Parthia. After Antony's supplies were destroyed, he requested assistance from Artavastes, but the king of Armenia sent no aid. There was a small-scale war in Armenia, and Artavastes was captured when Antony's men said they wanted to negotiate with him. The negotiations were short. It was a small victory, smaller than Octavian's recent victory, but Antony had a grand celebration for his achievement nonetheless. In Alexandria, Antony dressed as the god Dionysus Bacchus and rode in a carriage before the chained king Artavasdes, leading him to Cleopatra sitting on her throne. Romans were not happy to hear of Antony's ceremony, saying he was perverting the Roman triumph in a foreign city with foreign gods and with a foreign queen. It may sound similar to a triumph, but it's actually unlikely Antony intentionally made this ceremony like a triumph. For one, the ceremony as a whole was more Hellenized and Greek-like for the Alexandrian audience, and this is further muddled by the fact that the Roman triumph has origins similar to ceremonies to Dionysus. Criticism of Antony was only compounded in a ceremony he conducted known as the Donations of Alexandria. In this ceremony, Antony sat next to Cleopatra on golden thrones. The queen was dressed as the goddess Isis, and her children sat below her, Caesar's 13-year-old son Ptolemy Caesarion, and Antony's children Alexander Helios, Cleopatra Selene, and the infant Ptolemy Philadelphus. In this ceremony, Antony named Cleopatra and Ptolemy Caesarion the rightful rulers of Egypt, and then gave his children lofty lands and titles. Antony proclaimed these children were now monarchs over Roman provinces and allied client kingdoms, and even his son Alexander Helios was the rightful king of Parthia. While this further cemented Cleopatra's rule of Egypt, and was a good show for the Alexandrians, Antony's donations of Alexandria were largely in name only. It wasn't as if the kingdom of Parthia and other lands were suddenly ruled by these children. Practically, nothing was supposed to change, but Antony's actions 
politically changed a lot. In Julius Caesar's early political years, he proved to be a talented propagandist, emphasizing his own victories and successes, endearing the Roman people to him, which allowed him to increase his power and prestige. His adoptive son Octavian was living up to the family legacy. Octavian's propaganda worked to emphasize his victories over Sextus Pompey and the Illyrians and Dacians, and now he was creating a lasting peace in Rome. Octavian's propaganda also was now used to tear down Antony. Antony was being manipulated by the seductive Cleopatra and was clearly not acting like a Roman. He'd spent years in the East and in Alexandria, walking around like an Egyptian. Or even worse, Antony was delusional and starting to have kingly ambitions, promising Roman land to his children with a foreign queen. If there was one thing Romans hated, it was men with kingly ambitions. Even Antony's friends in Rome had a hard time defending Antony's actions in Egypt. Despite the negative press he was getting for it, Antony remained in Alexandria and enjoyed the life of luxury Cleopatra offered him. Between all the feasts and parties, Antony may have been an alcoholic. Everyone knew Antony was due to return to Rome at some point. As much as he loved the East, he was still a Roman politician. Some began to worry. Under what circumstances would he return? Would he be peaceful like Pompey Magnus, returning from his Eastern campaigns? Or like Sola, at the head of an army? Antony's reputation was taking a beating in Rome, and more and more Romans were supporting Octavian, who had brought them peace and stability. They worried Antony's eventual return would disrupt Octavian's peace. It was natural for Roman aristocrats of every generation to compete for supremacy of the Republic against their rivals. Every Roman wanted to be the most prestigious and accomplished man and wanted to have the most doctoritas. Recently, however, these competitions for supremacy evolved into civil wars where losers ended up dead. Octavian and Antony's other rivals were dead or made impotent. Total mastery of the Roman world was within Antony's grasp as well as Octavian's. To fully hold it, all they had to do was tear the other down. Of course, it was also clear that Octavian was on the rise, and Antony was actively declining. Who was the most powerful of the two was a question yet unanswered. Once allies, the two most powerful men in the Roman world, began to turn on each other. These began as verbal battles. Octavian and Antony both tried to belittle each other's accomplishments highlighting each other's failures, and bring up dark stains in each other's pasts. They both had a lot to criticize. Antony readily criticized Octavian's role in the prescriptions, describing the enthusiasm in which the megalomaniac 20-year-old signed men to their deaths. Boom. Roasted. He also criticized Octavian's obscure origins. Octavian's own family wasn't very noteworthy compared to Antony's aristocratic heritage. Octavian only got lucky that Caesar adopted him. Octavian wasn't even a true son of Caesar when Ptolemy Caesarian was. Boom, roasted. And of course, Antony saw Octavian's behavior at Philippi. While Antony was beating Cassius, Octavian was sick and hiding from Brutus, letting his army get killed. Boom, roasted. Antony said Octavian was frightened by Sextus Pompey, so he had to get Agrippa to beat him. Boom, roasted. 
Antony now argued that Octavian illegally stripped Lepidus of power and illegally stole his territory. Boom roasted. Octavian also never delivered the two legions to Antony he had promised before his Parthian invasion so long ago. Boom roasted. And of course, there was Octavian's marriage to Livia. Stealing another man's wife and having such a lavish feast dressed as a god while the Roman people starved under a blockade. <laughs> Indeed, Antony had plenty of evidence to show just how poor a leader Octavian was. Of course, Octavian had his own salvo to launch back at Antony. Antony was a drunk who left his beautiful and dutiful Roman wife Octavia lusting after a foreign queen, Cleopatra. Cleopatra's affair with Antony was no secret in Rome, and Antony, in his early 50s, should have gotten such debaucherous behavior out of his system by now. Antony only made things worse for himself by formally divorcing Octavia. Antony fired back that Octavian had numerous affairs with married women while he himself was married, and that Octavian treated married women like slaves and had his way with them, that Octavian's sexual debauchery was just as bad as his. But to the Romans, Octavian was a young man sowing his wild oats, and his quote-unquote affairs had all been with Roman women. Antony, on the other hand, was clearly seduced and a pawn of Cleopatra, as his donations of Alexandria clearly exemplified. Antony proclaiming his Egyptian children were the rulers of Roman territory demonstrated he wasn't looking out for Rome's best interest, but Cleopatra's. Octavian was only aided in the fact that he was physically present in Italy and Rome and could readily raise new propaganda to influence public opinion whereas Antony was across the Mediterranean and couldn't adapt as quickly. The tension of their propaganda had reached the point of no return. Why are you, Why are you the way that you are? You are? Honestly, Honestly, every time, every time I, try I try to do something, something fun or, or exciting, exciting, you, you make, it make it not that, that way. way. I, I hate so much, so much about, about the things, things that you, that you choose to be. To be. Antony formed up his army and started to prepare for war. The year was 32 BCE. Any threat of Antony actually landing in Italy was a ways away, but the mood in Rome was nervous. The five-year term of the triumvirate had expired. Octavian and Antony had no more legal authority to control their armies or territories. Antony ignored this and continued to call himself a legal triumvir and controlled his armies and territories nonetheless. Octavian appeared to retire from politics, but undeniably held control of his armies and territory as well. Two of Antony's men were just elected consuls who started verbally attacking Octavian on Antony's behalf. In response, Octavian arrived at the Senate's next meeting with an escort of troops. He had a few senatorial friends with him, poorly concealing their daggers, and Octavian took up a chair between the two consuls as Julius Caesar once did. Do you feel in charge? Even if Octavian held no legal power, he showed everyone who ruled the Western Republic. He defended his actions to the intimidated consuls who fled Rome toward Antony in the east. Octavian would gain a new ally from the east, Lucius Munatius Plancus. Munatius Plancus defected from Antony and told Octavian that he had seen Antony's new will. Hearing its contents, Octavian had to have it. <laughs> does put a smile on my face. 
Antony's will was housed in the Temple of Vesta. It was illegal for Octavian to take it from the sacred temple, but Octavian rolled over any protests. In a public gathering, Octavian found some choice quotes to read aloud, what Antony willed to be done after he was dead. Antony wanted some of his wealth to go to his Egyptian children with Cleopatra, which was illegal since they weren't Roman citizens. But far worse, the will demonstrated the true change in Mark Antony's heart. When he died, even if he was in Rome, Antony wanted his body brought to Egypt to be interred with Cleopatra. He was no longer a true Roman, but a slave to his foreign queen. Octavian let the people's imaginations run wild. As the will ignited Roman prejudice against the foreign queen. Octavian's propaganda reasoned that if Antony held control of Rome, he was going to move the Republic's capital to Alexandria with Cleopatra. In Alexandria, they would rule Rome as queen and king. No Roman was eager for another civil war, so Octavian wasn't going to fight a civil war. Octavian was going to defeat the evil foreign queen Cleopatra, who had turned a once proud Roman into her thrall. Propaganda reasoned, that Cleopatra would take control of the Roman Republic if she could. The Republic would cease to be the Republic and just another part of the backwards Egyptian kingdom. Roman legions weren't going to fight Antony's legions, but Cleopatra's eastern army. Italian communities swore allegiance to Octavian to help bring Cleopatra down. Communities made up primarily of Antony's veterans were exempted from this, but most of Antony's veterans did swear allegiance to Octavian. Only a few of Antony's veterans left Italy to fight for him. Octavian had far more supporters in the 1,000-man Senate, only 300 of whom would flee to Antony. The War of Words was over. Octavian had successfully turned Rome and Italy against Antony, whose position with Cleopatra was indefensible. The upcoming civil war between Octavian and Antony was another that could have been avoided had Octavian and Antony wanted to avoid it. Octavian and Antony had had a tumultuous relationship in the 12 years they had known each other. At first, Antony paid the 18-year-old boy no mind as he tried to claim his fortune from Caesar. Then they were enemies, and Octavian defeated Antony's forces in Gaul. Then they were allies, as they formed up the Second Triumvirate, because they had a common cause that would gain them both power. Then together they were heroes, who defeated Brutus and Cassius at Philippi. Their relationship cooled, as Octavian defeated Antony's rebelling brother, and Antony's siege of Brundisium nearly set off another civil war. But the two were able to reconcile, and the triumvirs became brothers-in-law with Antony's marriage to Octavia. But since then, Antony's fortunes fell, and Octavian's rose. Octavian had displayed a desire for dominance throughout his adult life. Mark Antony was seemingly the final obstacle between Octavian and total domination of Rome. Mark Antony was an easy man to criticize, and Octavian's propaganda did a number on his reputation. Antony just as readily made his own criticisms of Octavian, and between their exchanges, what was left of their relationship as peaceful partners turned into a rivalry that could only be settled with war. Octavian turned enough Romans against Antony and Cleopatra to justify war and eliminate Antony. In the winter of 32 BCE, 
Octavian and Antony prepared their forces for war. Antony aggressively squeezed the east for more men and resources again, forcing client kings to choose a side in the civil war. If they supported Antony, and Antony lost, they would likely be replaced by the victorious Octavian. If they chose Octavian, and Antony won, Antony would surely have his revenge. Cleopatra obviously gave Egypt's full support to her lover and remained by his side throughout the war. If she wanted to maintain the throne she fought for her entire adult life, Antony had to win. Her money, her ships, her men, and her love would help him. She brought Antony joy after he was broken by his failure in Parthia. She needed Antony to be as mentally and emotionally strong as his army was. Of course, Cleopatra remaining so close to Antony in this war didn't win him any neutral supporters in Rome and only reinforced the image that he was under the queen's control. Even Antony's own Roman generals didn't unanimously love her presence. Antony might not have realized how she continued to hurt his reputation among Romans, or he didn't care. Love him and love him and love him! I don't care who knows it! After a winter to prepare, neither side was still totally ready for war. Each side had amassed over 100,000 troops, with Antony apparently having slightly more men. However, Antony could in no way land 100,000 men in Italy at once. He was content to let Octavian come to him to fight in the east on his home turf. I can take it. Octavian too was not yet ready for war. While he had a massive army and navy, he was short of funds to pay for such expenses. He heavily taxed his territories to mobilize his forces in the first place, yet still didn't have the money to pay 100,000 soldiers when the war was over. If Octavian won and he still didn't have the money, his victory over Antony may quickly lead to his downfall and his great army could turn on him, starting a new civil war, or just killing him. The year turned from the winter of 32 BCE to spring 31 BCE. Octavian would be elected consul for 31 BCE, giving him legal command of his grand army. As the winter passed and seas calmed, Octavian launched his attack. While Antony might have had a good chance of beating Octavian, You can't defeat me. He would have a much harder time defeating Agrippa, who was commanding Octavian's navy. No, I know. <sighs> but he got... Agrippa launched the attack, sailing east and gaining a foothold in Greece, where Octavian started landing his ground forces. As Agrippa's navy attacked and weakened coastal communities, Octavian with his army overran and captured these cities and were making their way to the coastal city of Actium. At Actium, Octavian's forces finally met Antony's main army, which was larger than his. Octavian and Antony started concentrating their strength at Actium. As a geography teacher, I'm happy to say that geography played an important role in the battle to come. Octavian's forces were on a hill, which would have been tough for Antony to take, even with more men. I have the high ground! Worse for Antony, his forces were in low, watery ground, plagued by mosquitoes. Diseases like malaria and dysentery broke out in Antony's camp, debilitating soldiers and sailors, and even killing some. 
Some men started to desert Antony's army, wanting to escape with their lives, rather than wasting away, waiting for the battle to come. Summer came, and Antony's forces made moves to cripple Octavians. He tried to build fortifications that would cut off Octavian's fresh water supply, but Octavian's forces won every minor battle that was fought. Worse for Antony, Agrippa kept up his aggressive naval campaign, destroying many of Antony's transport ships, making it harder for his gigantic army to get supplies. With a few more victories, Agrippa totally controlled the seas and totally cut off Antony from food shipments he needed from Egypt. Antony's forces went inland, demanding communities give the giant army food. Summer wore on, and Antony's position was not improving. He was blockaded by Agrippa at sea, and his army was decaying around him. While still formidable, the longer he stayed, the easier it would be for Octavian to defeat him. Antony's allies were changing sides on him. Some senators who had fled for Antony now rejoined Octavian, and eastern client kings started swearing allegiance to Octavian and brought their forces to him. Where once Antony commanded 500 mighty warships at Actium, he had only enough healthy sailors to man half of them. Ultimately, Antony decided that one of his generals would lead his main army away while he would try to break out at sea with his navy. With that, Antony's legions packed up from their mosquito-infested camps and started marching inland to Greece, surviving until they could fight Octavian in more favorable conditions. This move further hurt Antony's already broken reputation. To the Romans, if the commander was going to make a retreat, he should lead it himself. Antony passed the job to his subordinate. Worse, it played into the narrative that Antony failed to do what was best for Rome, so he could do what was best for Cleopatra. Many of these ships he hoped to break out of Agrippa's blockade were hers, and her royal treasury that was financing Antony's operation was on her personal ship. Antony's once 500-ship navy was now inferior to Octavian's 400-ship navy, as he only had enough men to crew about 250 of his ships. Octavian's 400 ships formed into a crescent, ready to engage and intercept Antony's ships that were going to try and escape. Octavian commanded a few ships on the flank, but it was his admiral Agrippa, the man who defeated Sextus Pompey at his own game, who would orchestrate this battle for him. The day of battle began with a lot of waiting. Agrippa waited for Antony to come to him, and Antony waited for the winds to pick up to make a speedy escape. When the winds started to pick up, Antony's ships advanced, and the battle began as Agrippa's ships started attacking them. And now it begins. No. Now it ends. In the nautical chaos that followed, Cleopatra's ship saw an opening through Agrippa's navy and was able to speed her way through to Alexandria and safety. <laughs> Success! Antony watched Cleopatra and her treasury sail away and left his flagship for a smaller ship. He too found an open line to escape and followed her home. About 70 other ships were able to escape with them. The rest fought on, failing to defeat Agrippa before retreating back to the harbor. Agrippa did not pursue Antony and starved out Antony's trapped navy with his blockade. Eventually, they surrendered to him and Antony lost his navy. Not the navy! 
Antony's legions eventually ran out of supplies and had nowhere to go. Antony had no navy to pick them up with. Rome's armies never fought for the Republic, or for any ideal, but for their commander, who promised them coin. Antony's army was abandoned by Antony. While Antony's general remained loyal to him, his own officers started to negotiate with Octavian, who generously took them in. If their term of service was done, Octavian would give the land Antony promised them. If not, they now served Octavian. Even without Octavian's propaganda, it's hard to see what Antony hoped to accomplish, besides abandoning his army and navy for Cleopatra. If he had marched with the rest of his army, he could have retained their loyalty and perhaps even won a battle to turn his fortunes around. At Actium, he could have remained with his navy to have a better withdrawal, rather than leaving them leaderless. Now only a fraction of his navy remained loyal to him, and thousands of men died for his lost cause at Actium. Antony's apparent focus was getting Cleopatra and her interests out of Actium safely. Octavian's propaganda proved true after all. Antony made it to Alexandria with his lover and her treasury, but his war was lost. No Roman would ever rally to Antony's cause again. You're dead in this town. Our essential question to keep in mind this episode was, what events led up to Actium and what would happen after Actium? Go ahead and pause if you would like to reflect on your answer. This episode, power continued to shift between Octavian and Antony. Leading up to Actium, both tried to blacken each other's names, but Octavian's propaganda war was far more effective than Antony's. Antony's love for Cleopatra was used against him, and he was made out to be controlled by a foreign queen who would rule over the Roman Republic if left unchecked. A few of Antony's recent actions lent credence to this exaggeration. Therefore, Octavian had to mobilize an army to defeat her. Antony would just as readily form his own army to defeat Octavius, a nobody who would have been a nobody without Julius Caesar's name. Of course, Octavian and Antony could have existed in harmony a lot longer as rulers of the eastern and western halves of the Republic if they wanted to, but both very willingly steered into and escalated the war of words, which would become a true war to prove who was stronger. Just like Caesar against Pompey at Pharsalus, and the once united Second Triumvirate against Brutus and Cassius at Philippi, a Roman civil war was going to be decided in an eastern battle. It is happening again. It's like poetry, so if they rhyme. Time is a flat circle. Someone once told me time is a flat circle. When their battle at Actium came, Antony's only apparent tactical goal was to get Cleopatra and her treasury to safety. Once that seemed accomplished, Antony also escaped, abandoning the rest of his forces to Octavian and Agrippa. Octavian would come for them. As for what will happen after Actium, that's for you to speculate. Will Antony and Cleopatra be able to raise a defense? What will Octavian do if he can capture them? Is it possible for them to reconcile? Find out next week in the penultimate episode of Death of the Roman Republic. Hello listeners, Death of the Roman Republic is ending soon. The series will conclude at chapter 20 on October 27th, 2020. However, the podcast feed won't be inactive, and I have a slew of one-off episodes I plan to release for the rest of 2020 and 2021. The first of these one-off episodes will be a Q&A. 
You can submit questions about producing the show, about Roman history, about myself, or about anything else you can think of. I have no idea how long this episode might be, but I'll try to answer as many appropriate questions as possible. You can tweet Q&A questions at the show at dotrrpod on Twitter, or email the show at dotrrpod at gmail.com, and I'll try to include your question and credit you with asking if you would like. So tweet or email the show if you have any questions for me, and I'll try my best to answer them. The Q&A episode will drop roughly around Halloween 2020, maybe the day before, maybe the day after. We'll see. A lot is up in the air in the world right now. Stay safe and have a lovely rest of your day. Check out the show on YouTube at Death of the Roman Republic Podcast. Re-listen to favorite clips and share with friends and help them discover the show. Link to the channel is in the podcast notes. Thank you. I almost forgot to record this, but you can follow the show on Twitter for some Roman history memes and stuff, and the series is kind of coming to the end, so there's probably some good stuff there. Uh, D-O-T-R-R pod on Twitter. Feel free to subscribe and rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact the show via email, you can email dotrrpod at gmail.com. That's dotrrpod at gmail.com to contact the show. Thank you for listening. All that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show.